0: We're heading out, and I just tell you, I'm excited to be up here this morning. I have the privilege of being with you, as Bob mentioned, in the prayer time. It's a great banquet weekend, both here for women who are at our church and at Indy West, which is in Brownsburg, where Jerry is going through the great banquet, so that's a lot of fun. And I don't know about you, but we've, we're going through the parable series. I'm finding them um, challenging and encouraging at the same time. You know, a couple of weeks ago, three or four weeks ago, we had kind of the marbles message. I don't know if you were here that day, but we had lots of marbles, and it talked about um, using your time well, counting your marbles, you know, the weeks you have left, and being prepared to, to serve God wherever you go. We talked about the parable of the sheep and the goats, which certainly gets our attention, you know, reaching out to those who are hurting or homeless. We want to be on the side of the sheep because Jesus, you know, loves the sheep. He, those are the ones who follow him. Uh, we talked about the Good Samaritan story last week, and then today we're talking about the parable of the wicked tenants or the renters in the vineyard. Uh, so it's another great parable. These are all stories, and uh, these go along with the, if the, the cover of our bulletins. You don't have to look at this, but if you do, the cover of our bulletins over this whole series, and this was also at our all-church retreat back at the end of uh, August or so, talks about... Uh, or looks at, it's a book. The book represents the Bible, the ladder coming out, the footprints going out. We are all part of God's story. God is calling us into the story with him of how we might live for him. And so we'll talk about that in this message as well, in the parable of the wicked tenants. So, uh, so let's read that now. It's in Luke 20, verses nine through 19. Um, it'll be on the screens and I'll read it aloud. This is God's word. He began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and leased it to tenants and went to another country for a long time. When the season came, he sent a slave to the tenants in order that they might give him his share of the produce of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Next, he sent another slave. That one they also beat and insulted and sent away empty-handed. And he sent still a third, this one also they wounded and threw out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son, perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they discussed it among themselves and said, this is the heir, let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard this, they said, heaven forbid. But he looked at them and said, what then does this text mean? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces and it will crush anyone on whom it falls. When the scribes and chief priests realized that he told this parable against them, They wanted to lay hands on him at that very hour, but they feared the people. Let us pray. Lord, we ask that you bless us as we have heard your word and we look at it together. And so, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be a blessing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, it's good when we study the Bible together that we understand the context. And I think the context here in this passage is really important. So the setting is Jesus conversing, really kind of arguing, going back and forth with the chief priests and the scribe, the Jewish leaders, the Jewish religious leaders. And this is directly after Palm Sunday, which was in Luke Nineteen. So in Luke 19, we have Palm Sunday. Here we get into Luke 20, and Jesus is dealing uh, uh, with the chief priest. So it's possibly even Monday of Holy Week. So, so Friday's coming when Jesus is going to the cross. It's that very week. Also at the end of chapter 19 and at the start of uh, Luke chapter 20, is another story, and it's the story of Jesus going into the temple, so that week, and going in and, and overturning uh, the money changing tables. In fact, Mark tells that in a little more detail, and in Mark it says this, Jesus went in and overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. Basically, Jesus disrupted all the traffic in the temple courts. He wouldn't let people come through there and overturn the money changers tables now this is the turf of the chief priests and this is their place the temple courts and so probably they have allowed this to go on and so they come to Jesus and they're like who gives you the authority to do this I was trying to relate it's kind of hard to think about and picture what that might look like I was like what would that look like at ZPC one of the things I thought of what if the elders of this church, the current elders, some of them who might be in this room, said, you know, we need to make some money, more money for our local missions and, and global missions. So we're going to set up, you know, we've been to Marsh, we've been to Kroger, we're going to set up those racks right outside of every one of the doors where you go through and you got the magazines and you got your candy and you got your cold soda. We're going to set those up. Then we're going to hire some people to sell those, you know, as you come. So every, every Sunday when you come into worship. You have the chance to buy that, and that'll make money for the church. And imagine Jesus and we not really knowing who He is comes one Sunday and throws down all those racks and say, "Don't make my house a den of robbers." You know, this is a house of prayer. What are you doing here? And and the uh, and the elders, let's say the elders say we're 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 giving them a hard time. Let's say the elders come back and say, "Um, "You know, we don't really know who you are, but you seem like you have some authority, but." We're making money off those magazines, you know, the Skittles and the Tic Tacs are selling well. Who gives you the authority to come into our house and do this? And this is kind of what's going on, and this kind of leads us to uh, Jesus not really answering their question, having a little give and take, and then he tells the parable that we just read. So as I was looking this week, some of the Bible commentators and scholars that have studied this more than I say that the characters in the story are pretty clear to see. So look, let's look at the players in this story. And so we'll take a look here. The owner of the vineyard is God the Father. The vineyard itself that the, 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 uh, the owner has is Israel, the nation of Israel. The tenants who are, who are uh, farming, making produce or, you know, collecting the produce in the, in the vineyard are the religious leaders. The servants are past prophets sent to Israel. And as you know, the prophets were typically rejected and Israel went its own way and they were thrown out or rejected. The son, the son of the owner, represents Jesus himself, even as he tells this parable. And then the others, at the end of the story, could be the Gentiles, because if we see that uh, uh, some of the Jewish people, and in fact the Jewish leaders in this case reject Jesus, that the message would go to Gentiles, or would go to at least to Jesus' disciples, who are willing and, uh, and able to follow Jesus. So let's kind of recap the story and look at a couple of key points. The owner has a vineyard, but he lives far away. He rents the vineyard out and he sends a servant to collect the rent. Now he's collecting the rent would be a portion of the produce of the vineyard. It's some of the fruit. Well, the servant is beaten and sent away. The second servant, it is done the same, but it says he's treated shamefully. And the third, they wound him and throw him out. So the violence is escalating. It's getting worse and worse. And then here's an important question. In verse 13, the owner says, what shall I do? What shall I do? Now, it's easy to skip over that, but I think it's important to stop there. Because if we think about, if he's a wealthy landowner, and he has, he has the means you know, to live somewhere else but own land somewhere else, he could probably also have the means to call upon the local authorities and say, you know what, these, these, uh, they're mistreating my servants. They're not paying rent. I want you to go and arrest them. Or at least he would have the means to find some other servants or other employees to go and kick these guys out but he says, what shall I do? And instead he says, I will send my son uh, whom I love, perhaps they will respect him. Bible scholar Kenneth Bailey says there are words in Greek and Arabic that describe the owner's vulnerability in the face of of violence since he sends his son. He says "We, we can't fully um, translate those words into English. So he suggested some other things. So the the owner, if we know the owner to be God, the father being willing to send his son into a vulnerable situation represents this as the owner. Noble sacrifice, patience, risk-taking, long-suffering, compassionate, and self-emptying. So the owner sends his son, it says his beloved, or another translation, it says the one I love or the one whom I love. And he sends his son there. And this language is really no no coincidence. If we read in Matthew 3, it's at the time of Jesus' baptism. And the voice of God the Father comes down and says, this is my son whom I love. And then in Matthew 17, it's at the Mount of uh, Transfiguration when uh, Jesus is meeting there with Moses and Elijah. They're glowing. And God the Father, his voice comes down and says, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. So the, the words are no coincidence here that Jesus is using. He's saying, this is who I am. I am the son of the father and I'm willing to go into a place that is vulnerable. So if you think about the son, so he, he has a father who who's a landowner, probably has enough means. He could probably also say, hey dad, you wanna send some people with me? You know, you wanna send some armed guards or somebody? I'm not sure I wanna go alone, but apparently because of the outcome of the story, he does go alone. So if we're taking the parable at face value, we see the son is willing to go, he's willing to go in the face of violence, which they've already heard about, and to go and to confront the tenants. But something terrible happens, they cast him out and they kill him too. And the chief priests are the ones hearing this and they get it, they say heaven forbid this would happen. And then in a few verses they get angry and want to, it says, to lay hands on Jesus. Now they're not, they're not laying hands as we did a few minutes ago with the people going to Kentucky, they want to lay hands on him to arrest him and to kill him which would happen later that week but jesus is willing to go to be vulnerable to go by himself and to uh, and to give his life even for us as the son in the story does we might say, you know, it's hard to relate to that. It's, it's kind of an extreme story. It's a story from 2,000 years ago. The, you know, the metaphors and some of those things may not relate to us today about vineyards and things. But I know in a, in a couple of different ways this story can uh, completely relate to us today. Uh, God's word is living and active and it has authority for us today. Even though written a long time ago, it has authority written for us today. Just a couple of weeks ago, and here's a story I think that relates of how people are still living out this kind of faith today, the way that Jesus lived. Just a couple of weeks ago, we had missionaries visiting. Uh, they requested, or through I think our mission commission, that someone have dessert for them, and they had a dessert here at the church. And I missed it, and I'm sorry I missed, because I didn't know their full story, but I heard about it later. And then this week, as I was kind of preparing, kind of working on reading some of the Bible commentaries, looking at the scripture this week, thinking about illustrations, my phone rang. It was actually a guy from the Presbyterian Church uh, office in Louisville, and he said, your church supports John and Gwen Haspel's, and I'd like to send you some information about them, about what's uh, gone on in their lives and a story about their lives, and I encourage you to keep supporting them even though they're retiring and other missionaries that might take their place in Ethiopia. So he sent me the information, <clears throat> and as I read the story, I wanted to share it with you today because it's an incredible story. So I want to borrow now from the story that he sent to me a news, a news story actually about Gwen and John Haspels. For nearly 40 years, Gwen and John Haspels have lived as Presbyterian Church mission workers in Africa, teaching love and forgiveness in cultures of violence. In Ethiopia, the native Suri people would often tell the couple they could not understand the depth of forgiveness that they could receive through Jesus. But on October 1st, 2014, so just a year and 10 days ago, Some tragic events unfolded in in Ethiopia that helped the people understand the depth of forgiveness. On that day, as the couple traveled on a road, they had traveled dozens of times, a gunman jumped out of the bush and fired a shot at their car. A car window was open and a bullet hit Gwen just above the lip, shattering her jaw. Many of the 20 teeth she lost turned into razor-sharp projectiles and hit John's arm and chest. A bone fragment hit him in the eye. John said, The first of many miracles happened, and that was that neither of us went into shock. Gwen wiped the blood from my eye, and we drove away as fast as we could. There were four native Surrey people, men, riding with them to a construction site where they were going to work together. These men immediately jumped out of the moving car as self preservation kicked in. One of them later told John that the man who fired the gun quickly disappeared in the bush with a blanket over his head, a sign of shame. They drove to the nearest town, then were transported by ambulance ambulance to a hospital in Addis Ababa. The couple's doctor reported that more than 200 people gathered at the rural hospital to show their love for John and Gwen. Gwen says, they came through the emergency room wailing and some collapsed with grief. Some even came into the operating room. There was no way to keep them out. It's the way they show love and concern. Later, when the Haspels were flown to a larger hospital, more than 1,000 friends showed up at the airport to see them off. Some weeks later, after the attack, a group of Suris told John they were going to find and kill the man who shot at them, who actually did shoot them. He immediately said no and began an ongoing conversation about forgiveness to the Suri people. The series were told that John and Gwen were not angry with them and and to continue to love um, each other as they always have. Gwen said, we've always taught the importance of praising God, of forgiveness and reconciliation, and now we have the chance to live it. Now, a year later, safely back in Kansas, after retiring from mission service this summer, John and Gwen are still seeing doctors regularly as they recover from their injuries. John has lost sight in his damaged eye And Gwen has had several surgeries to repair her mouth. But listen to this. There's more to the story. Soon, and it may already be happening now, John is planning on heading back to Ethiopia to help baptize 1,000 new Christians in that country. And John also hopes to see the man who shot them and to offer his forgiveness. Our prayer is that he will come to know Jesus. So amazing love. In the parable, the owner and the son choose grace over selfishness, they choose grace. There is greed shown by the renters, but they choose grace over greed. They choose uh, selflessness over selfishness and vulnerability in place of violence. And so Gwen and John Haspel today, 2000 years later, showed as well, vulnerability in the face of violence, show grace and forgiveness with the love of the people they have, the love of neighbor as Jesus has taught them. We were looking at this parable as a church staff on Wednesday at our staff meeting. We were talking about how the renters in the parable were absurd in their thinking. If you picked up on that, they said, if we kill the heir, if we kill the son, perhaps the land will be ours. And it was absurd thinking. But then we said the grace that God shows to us by even sending his son. And then as we think about as God the Father sent Jesus to us, his grace is absurd as well. It's, it's overwhelming. It's incredible. It's, it's like the Haspel story. Um, An unbelievable amount of grace to show forgiveness and love for us in the face of sin. Probably none of us will uh, go to Ethiopia, maybe some of you will, Um, I don't have plans to, and maybe none of us will ever be shot, but we can have opportunities when we stay connected to God and who he is, we can then represent him even here around our world today. Well, there are two other words, key words I want to look at in this parable before we, before we end today, and I'll take a few minutes. The first is others, and the second is cornerstone. The first is others, and the second is cornerstone. It says in verse 16, he will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Well, if you remember, we had it on the screen. The others could be the Gentiles or Jesus' disciples. So if the Jewish leaders were going to reject Jesus, he was going to say, I'm going to give the vineyard to someone else. I'm going to give my kingdom, God's kingdom, and the chance to help run it, to, to tend to it as a vineyard to someone else. Well, who are Jesus' followers today? That's us. And if God's word is living and active, and we can be part of the story as well, He's calling us to be the others. You know, if other people say, Well, I don't want, I'm gonna reject Jesus, He's gonna say, Well, then I'll give you guys a chance. I'll give you guys a chance to tend to the vineyard. You know, and, and Jesus says in John 15, I am the vine, and you are the branches. Remain in me, and you can do great things. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And so we today can do things through God with his help. I think as Bob mentioned earlier, there's four ladies here from Brazil who were here this week, and there were two men here who were from Brazil last week at the Men's Great Banquet last week and the Women's Great Banquet this week. They're learning about the Great Banquet. So some people here from the Zionsville Presbyterian Church and the Zionsville Great Banquet community in the next year or two, can go and start a great banquet in Brazil. Very cool. There's four people here from uh, ZPC that are in Romania this week. They're helping and they've been called there. There's four, four members of our church in Romania to help start uh, over 30 new MOPS groups in Romania to reach out to young mothers in that country. God is calling us to do things abroad and here as well. And I want to bring it down maybe to our level and to my level because I, I need to do that as well. And one of the things I thought about this as we we look at this story was the selflessness uh, that God the Father as the owner showed and the selflessness that Jesus shows to us instead of the selfishness selfishness, uh, that the renters show. And I was thinking about myself yesterday, um, true story. So my wife, Claire, she said, you know, hey, uh, there's a family in town, they're moving just a short move across town and they need some help moving some of their furniture and things. And I'm going to confess that my first thought was, I really don't want to do that. Okay. You know, this, I think it was this Friday night. It was going to be Saturday morning. And I was even thinking Saturday morning, you know, I don't really want to go move. I don't, I'm not very good at that. I don't really, you know, when I was 25, maybe that was great, but now I don't, not so much, you know. And I thought, wait a minute. I've got to get up tomorrow and talk about selflessness instead of selfishness. So I can't get out of the move, right? Okay. I got, I got to do my part. So our family, my daughter couldn't go yesterday, but the rest of us uh, either helped watch their young two-year-old son, or we helped went and move some furniture. Now, I was really glad, I wanna tell you, the washer and dryer was already there, they didn't have to move the fridge, okay? So I got out on that. But we did help move a lot of the other furniture, and my sons helped, and Claire helped. And you know when you get to do something like that, you think it's gonna be a have-to-do, but when you get there, it's a get-to-do, and you feel really good about it. So we weren't there as long as some others, But we were there and we did. And it was a reminder, you know, if we're gonna talk about being selfless and being like Jesus, we've gotta walk it out. Even in small things, like when a friend calls, say, hey, can you help me move some furniture? We need to be able to say yes. And I've wondered one more thing is, you know, how did the early church grow? Um, And if you look at a little bit of church history, and I'm I'm a little bit of like a history nerd, okay, I'll admit that, I've probably said that before, but you get to study some church history in seminary and other places. How did the early church grow? How did it go? You know, Jesus was killed, you know, and the people were afraid. What happened? How did it explode like it did? Because it really did explode in a matter of a couple of hundred years. Well, it's because the early Christians actually believed the things that Jesus said, and then they lived it out, and it made the church grow. Here's one story around 165 A.D., more than 100 years after the time of Jesus, but not that far. So some of these people may have remembered their great grandparents may have been around at the time of Jesus or the disciples. There was a plague, really an epidemic, uh, maybe uh, smallpox that hit Rome during that time in that region uh, around that area. It was during the reign of Emperor Marcus Aurelius and it killed, this plague even killed the emperor himself At its height, it was reported that 5,000 people were dying a day. Here's how it was described. At the first first onset of the disease, the people pushed the sufferers away, those with the disease, and fled, throwing them actually out into the roads before they were dead, hoping to to avert the spread and contagion of the deadly disease. But there were others who had a different response. Uh, Dionysus, a Christian bishop in Alexandria, which was right there in North Africa, wrote about the Christian behavior during this plague. And there were actually historians who wrote things down back then. And he writes this Heedless of the danger, they, which were the early Christians, took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. And with them, they departed this life serenely happy, for they were infected by others with the disease drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. So the early Christians, when, when others were pushing people out into the streets saying, I don't want to get this disease, let them die in the streets. Christians were taking them in said, we'll take care of them. We'll take care of your sick. We'll watch out for them. And some of them contracted the disease, whatever it was as well, and ended up dying with it as well. Well, this isn't the only story and I don't have time to tell a lot, but a book I was looking at on uh, Thursday and Friday there were lots of these stories of early Christians who were willing to go beyond what was, what was even seemed logical, to go ab- show absurd grace, to show selflessness instead of selfishness. And it was so different that other people started saying, what makes you different? What, what do you have that I don't have? And then people wanted to join their cause. And within a matter of a couple hundred years, the Christian faith had grown tremendously. Well, I said there were two important words to know. The first was others. You can be the others. I can be part of the others. We can be part of the others. The church today can be like the early church where we are living it out, what it means to follow Christ. And finally, the other word is cornerstone. Now, at the end of the parable, Jesus said, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That's a quote from Psalm 118. Well, what's a cornerstone? Here's a picture of a cornerstone. Uh, we're going to put up there on the screen, and you guys have probably seen that. So uh, in buildings you might see where oftentimes the stone at the corner of the building, cornerstone, um, was dated or something like that. And the idea was in really kind of early construction, a cornerstone would be very pivotal because it marked the boundaries as well as it helped to be the part of the foundation that held the whole building up. And so Jesus is our cornerstone. He says if you reject him, though, it can give you a crushing blow because the cornerstone could end up on you. So we need to put our faith in the one who is the cornerstone. So I want to have a visual reminder of this for something for you to remember today. So I've asked RJ and Libby Pollack to come on up and they're going to come up. We're going to play a really quick game of Jenga and I promise we're still going to get you out on time, I think. So but RJ and Libby are here and they're going to play a quick game. Who's played Jenga? Anybody play Jenga with the little blocks? Okay. We've got a bigger version. These are really heavy. So if they fall on Libby, it's going to hurt. No, they're not. They're, uh, Libby, why don't you come around on this sign? These are actually uh, court cardboard blocks, Jenga blocks. Now the idea is you you pull one out and you see if you can keep the tower. And we're going to see if we can if they can pull one out and see if they can keep the tower. So, Libby, why don't you go first? Oh, she found a soft one. She's pulling it out. Okay, good. Okay, RJ going to pull one out. Ooh, I don't know. He's trying. <laughs> oh, he's trying. Okay, different. Okay, there you go. All right, now, if Jesus is truly our cornerstone, we're gonna look at the base, like in the picture. We're gonna ask them, okay, go to the base. Let's see what you got. Can you pull one pull one out on the very base? See what happens. Oh oh okay it was down. Thank you. So Libby's the loser. No, you're not. No, you're not. Thank you. You are the winner because you helped prove our point. Thank you guys. You can have a seat. Thank you guys. Thanks, RJ. At the first hour, um, Dave and Ann Norris played, and they played too well. The, the tower didn't fall. Okay, so, so it was a fail. I had to knock it over. But if, the, if anything, we want to remember, as Jesus said at the end, again, he's quoting from the Psalms, that he is truly the cornerstone. He is the vine, we are the branches. He is the one we need to build our whole foundation on. If we build it on ourselves... We have a sandy foundation. You know, If we build upon the rock, if we build on who Jesus is, if he's our cornerstone, he's the one we set our boundaries on, he's the one we build our lives on, then our lives will be good. And we will learn from him what it means to be vulnerable in the time of difficulties, what it means to show grace instead of greed, and what it means to be selfless in the face of selfishness. And that's who we are called to be. Let us pray. God, thank you that you have called us through the scripture to be uh, a people of grace. God, to be selfless and not selfish. Help us and forgive us when we are selfish to come back to you, to remember that you are our cornerstone, you are our firm foundation, and to put our lives on you, our dependence upon you, so that uh, we can live for you. Lord, we give you thanks for this day and help us to remember that as we go. In Jesus' name, amen. Let it stand to sing together.